Today's guest on the Seek Outside podcast is Kevin Koprick. Kevin is an experienced mountain guide and a rescue trainer. Thus, most of our conversation is going to be based around things you can do to avoid rescue, things you can do to help rescue out. So, have a good time and welcome Kevin Koprick. Hey, this is Kevin with Seek Outside. Our podcast guest today is Kevin Koprick. I've known Kevin for quite a few years. He's been a mountain guide for a long time, very avid outdoor user. He also teaches rescue. Um, so we're going to chat a lot about backcountry safety. How are you doing, Kevin? Great, Kevin. Nice to uh, chat today. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Why don't you give us a little rundown on, you know, basically, I don't want to say your resume, but uh, some <laughs> of the different things you've done. Yeah. So uh, it started, I've been an outdoors person my entire life from the time I could walk, uh, time in the woods, time fishing, uh, hunting with my father, and lots of camping. We grew up camping as a family, and that sort of transpired into my interests as I got older. Um, and in college, I kind of I got into climbing a little bit more so and really started opening up opportunities for me in terms of not only really cool employment opportunities, but cool trips to do through the outdoor program at the university. And then pretty soon I found myself working for them and uh, supervising others. And that was sort of the beginning of my climbing and guiding career there. And from there, it's taken me all around the world. I've been fortunate enough to work for some really spectacular companies. Um, San Juan Mountain Guides based here in Uray, Colorado, and Mountain Trip out of Telluride or Ofer. Um, and so through those opportunities, we were, you know, working different places, Antarctica, Mount Vincent, uh, a couple trips to um, overseas to uh, Karsten's Pyramid, which is in Indonesia. Uh, really, really interesting trip. Just getting to base camp is the <laughs> kind of the crux of that adventure but uh yeah and then as well as lots of work in alaska uh in the alaska range denali those things and then uh of course with san juan mountain guides we had a, a ton of of work here in southwest colorado there's there's not a corner of this uh part of the state that i i don't know pretty well uh whether it be through guiding or through rescue work or personal adventure travels here Okay, cool. So you, after you did the, a lot of the guiding, now you're a rescue trainer, right? And you teach yeah. rescue essentially all around the U.S. to all sorts of people. So why don't you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so as I was looking around my guiding co-workers, I recognized that there were not too many old guides around and that started to make an impression on me and uh, had an opportunity to take a class here in Uray, Colorado, 
with uh, rigging for rescue when I was fairly new to the rescue team here in Uray. And uh, it really sort of lit up my world a little bit. I'd taken a ton of courses over the years and rope work and those types of things. But this one was really different. And uh, from that point on, I started uh, pretty soon thereafter working with the company as a part-time contract instructor. And then over the last 14 years, that work has changed and I've sort of migrated away from guiding and some of the other things that I was doing to the point where that's all I do now is, is work for Rigging for Rescue, teaching seminars. I do testing projects uh, that we write papers on and get to work with really interesting people. I just got back not long ago working down in Albuquerque at the Air Force Pararescue Schoolhouse. Awesome. So my primary reason, like I, I run into you, I've ran into you guiding clients. I've ran into you while hunting. Um, we hunt kind of some of the same territory at times. Um, we have some of the same friends. I was on rescue for the rescue team for a little bit. Um, primary reason is your background should make you an absolute expert in basically backcountry safety or how things can go wrong and stuff like that. Um, so if you were say, just trying to talk to say a thousand backcountry, avid backcountry users that maybe hunted and did all sorts of activities, what kind of advice would you give them as far as staying safe, safe and stuff? You know, I think I, it's a shame that we're on the phone and not in person. I started to chuckle when you mentioned that. Um, I think that the probably the most important thing that any backcountry traveler, hunter can do is to be aware of themselves and their actions in the terrain they're traveling in, their preparation, things like that. Um, I think it's pretty common that we tend to, human beings tend to focus on the end result, you know, the success of the hunt for a lot of people maybe is determined by what they produce or what, what comes of it. And the same is true for maintaining a, a healthy lifestyle while traveling in the backcountry. If you're not aware of your surroundings and yourself and how you manage yourself in those surroundings, uh, I've seen a lot of people over the years migrate into pretty dangerous places physically and emotionally, and then also, you know, in terms of actual rescue uh, missions and needs arising from that. And so just thinking about the things that maybe could have gone wrong or little little places along the way that the, the, the fork in the road would have been easy to, to step the other way and maybe would have had a different outcome. Exactly. I mean, it seems like sometimes the the focus on the result, like the focus on I am climbing this mountain or something like that has a tendency to get people um, maybe not paying attention to certain risks like the stability or the weather or, or things that could change. Um, in the case of hunting, I know just, it seems that a lot of, a lot of the rescue call outs, at least 
from the time when I was on the team. Uh, they've been kind of all over the place. They've been a horse, you know, accident. There's been lost hunters. There's been all over kind of a lot of different things that could kind of go sideways on a hunt like that. And that's not even to say that a lot of people have, um, poor experiences in the woods because when you get in those shoulder seasons, you know, it might, it might snow 12 inches. You might be kind of a little stuck where you're at, or it might not be as easy going out as it was when you came in. Yeah, that's definitely true. You know, it's a dynamic environment in which we're choosing to put ourselves. And I think we have to maintain a healthy respect for that. It's, uh, it's really easy to get tunnel vision and you hear all over the place. It's sort of a buzzword in my career, situational awareness, you know, maintain your situational awareness. And it's easy to say, and it's a lot harder to practice. You have to do it diligently and with purpose. It doesn't just happen by accident. Exactly. Exactly. Now you mentioned that you did a lot of cool climbs like all over the world, right? Um, Oh yeah. Anything from Vincent yesterday, we had a, um, backcountry. We had a pilot on who was talking about backcountry flying, um, flies into like the Frank church quite often and stuff like that. Well, he went to Antarctica, I think it was last year, um, flew down there and said it was extremely cold. When you did Vincent, how was that? <laughs> it was also extremely cold, but it was uh, it was also extremely warm. I, I guess it was it was the the continent of extremes, and uh, it, it was really bizarre because the ambient air temperature would be quite cold, but because of the intensity of the sun, um, if there was very little breeze it could feel quite warm. Um, and just the flip side of that, if you were sort of lulled into thinking things were great or you became complacent and the breeze picked up, you knew immediately how cold it was. Um, it was a, it's a really neat place to be. It's probably the most special place in the world that I've been just to see how vast it is and, what something looks like without a ton of people, um, you know. Obviously, we we all take our recreation and whatnot to wherever we go, and we make an impact. And I recognize that, but it's just really interesting to see that down at the uh, at the bottom of the world there. Wow. Um, so we lost Dennis briefly. Dennis is back on. Everything good, Dennis? Yep, I think we're still uh, we're still doing well. So okay. <laughs> I'm still here cool. somewhere. So feel free to jump in whenever you want, Dennis. Yeah, yeah. I kind of missed a little bit of what you guys were talking about there, but um, yeah, I'll I'll jump in. So you were saying um, you started climbing when you were in college. Where did you go to college? University of Minnesota Duluth, and then there's a small school there in Duluth called Saint Scholastica. And so I started at St. Scholastica and then pretty quickly transferred over to the university. And, uh, yeah, undergraduate was the best decade of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so you started climbing on the North shore then? Is that like where you got started in that? Yeah. 
that was it. The small crags right in Duluth and then all along the North Shore of Lake Superior, the Superior Hiking Trail, uh, Boundary Waters was a, a big stomping grounds for me. Yeah. Uh, so we're so we're all Wisconsin boys that have relocated to Western Colorado. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Totally. So, uh, and I guess you guys were talking about climbing a lot too. Um. How How do you see kind of you know, uh, and maybe you touched on this a little bit, but kind of the, the, like, what, what does climbing bring to hunting or what does hunting bring into like the climbing world? You know, like, cause you kind of, you straddle both of those at the same time. Right. For sure. And, uh, you know, I think in both cases, sort of the most obvious parallel for me is the fact that there's some objective out there, whether that's, seeing wildlife, uh, perhaps pursuing it for, you know, a trophy hunt or whatever your objective is. And it's very similar in climbing. There's some objective, a route, uh, a summit, something like that. And so oftentimes we find ourselves traveling through terrain and experiencing wild places uh, in pursuit of perhaps something else other than just being there. It's kind of interesting. Have you ever been, um, have you ever been going somewhere to maybe go for a climb and then made that a hunting spot because of things that you noticed <laughs> in that area? Oh yeah. Um, yeah, for, particularly here in southwest Colorado, we do quite a bit of kind of obscure backcountry climbing routes in the winter as well as in the summer. And uh, the things that we've seen on those outings have definitely inspired some some destinations, some routes, some adventures for the hunting side of things as well. Yeah, I've had a couple of those things happen. I I did a trip a few years ago with one uh, F Jeff one F Bearden. Um, yeah, I had I had Angie drop us off over in Lake City, and it was about this time of year, and we just wanted to find our way back over here, foot powered. And as I was going through yeah. that, I was like, that would be a if I was an elk, I'd really hang out right there. That would be a good spot <laughs> and, and stuff, you know. So yeah, you just kind of see those spots, and are like, okay, let me mark that. Yeah, it's spectacular. I used to do this route out in the Cimarron's quite a bit with clients. And uh, I remember this one particular spot on the trail coming around a corner and the view kind of opened up and it was like clockwork. There were two majestic bulls constantly working this sort of high valley. And uh, it got to the point where I could sort of brief the client that I was uh, working with that day that we would see these animals in there and uh, without fail the next, you know, several years we'd see them. Hmm. So how does, cause we're recording this, it's um, April, 2020. So most of the nation is pretty concerned about COVID-19 coronavirus. So how is that change? I know, I don't know if it's been you, but I know the mountain rescue team has posted a couple things on their social. So how does that change 
the whole rescue part at this point? What should people start to be careful of? Yeah, you know, I think uh, sort of my layman's explanation of it is due to the lack of testing and uh, a lack of understanding exactly how it spreads other than knowing that it spreads really fast and you could be asymptomatic uh, and shedding the the virus without even knowing it, um, we sort of have to treat everybody, both responders and potential patients, as a as a likely COVID-19 carrier. And so that influences the personal protective gear that we need to have with us. And as you probably heard, that's in quite short supply across the country. We are doing okay here in Southwest Colorado, but the majority of it hasn't really hit here yet. It also influences our social practices. You know, in order to carry out a mission a uh, rescue mission in the backcountry, it takes a team of people. We're not doing that as one or two. And so we're forcing that small team of four to six people into tight spaces, into vehicles, into aircraft, things like that. So our, I guess, methodology at this point has been to just try to get the word out to people that, you know, as a, as a, responsible backcountry user, it would be great if everybody could kind of manage their own travel plans a little bit to reduce some of the risk that they're exposing themselves to it. And that, that helps us. It helps them. It helps the entire community. Um, in the last week, there have been two big avalanche rescues in our neighboring counties, one over in San Miguel County, and then just the other day in Dolores County. And so that's a, that's a trimming on the system when, when we have to respond to those. And we're pretty much breaking all of the rules that uh, have been prescribed when we're forced to do that. So has that is that influenced the closure? I know um, there's certain closures in those counties right now uh, for backcountry skiing, maybe just trailheads in general. Um, is has that kind of um, factored into their decision to close those things? Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, and they may have changed this recently. I, I've I've been a little bit out of the loop on it, but I think that was um, San Juan County over Silverton that had done that. And as I understand their philosophy, they believe that there was a it was unlikely that there were, you know, COVID cases there at that point. And so they were really trying to sort of protect their community and their responders because they're so remote and they have so few resources to deal with that should the outbreak sort of take the same scale that it is elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that was their attempt was to really sort of limit that exposure to that risk um, by asking people and then ultimately, you know, closing and having fines in place for people who, who couldn't follow those expectations. Yeah, it does seem like in Colorado that right now it looks like the county we reside in is doing well, San Juan's doing well, but it seems like Gunnison and Eagle got hit particularly hard 
And most likely it was brought in by someone who wanted to go skiing. And then the small community, you know, uh, which doesn't have a lot of medical resources and stuff as well. That seems to create a real problem. I mean, what we state closed all the ski resorts a couple weeks ago for the most part. Yeah, it, uh, it's significant. You know, I think Montrose is our closest hospital here. I think they're doing well in managing this so far and we've had a nice, a low case count and the local communities seem to be respecting those, uh, social distancing protocols. I can say I just got off the phone with one of my coworkers uh, rigging for rescue. He's also a firefighter over in Colorado Springs, uh, and his wife is an ICU charge nurse, and he shared with me that they were at their max. Like, they were handling the cases that were currently in front of them, but there were no more ICU beds to accommodate more and the sad part of that is that they weren't anywhere near the peak of it yet. There were going to be more cases. It was going to be a uh, higher volume of patients. And so some pretty tough decisions are coming down the pike. And I just really hope our communities don't have to deal with that. That can, that can be really, really difficult. Yeah, I know I was wanting to go backpacking in a couple of different places. Um, one over in, San Juan County in Utah, but they are requesting that nobody, no out of county people come there. I get it. I mean, I'm kind of the same way. I'm kind of, I'm pretty supportive of, it looks like our county, you know, if you go out and drive around that we're doing a pretty good job, you know, like I know you mentioned on social that you were able to order pizza and margaritas and have them delivered the other night. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The local businesses have been great in making sure that we have every opportunity to uh, stay appropriately social. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, so you have, I'm kind of jealous of your place because you have a really good social distancing place. You mind talking about it a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So uh, a few years ago, I purchased, I've been looking for, well, I've been looking for a piece of property since I was a little kid. I remember doing it with my dad and um, the the right thing never came up. But a couple of years ago, it did. It was a patented mining claim just a couple miles outside of Uray here. And it has um, what some would call questionable access and that I can't drive right to it. Uh, it's about a quarter mile of walking from where I can take a four-wheeler and I can't get my car or truck within a probably half mile or a little more of it. And uh, it's just, it sits in a really special place about halfway up the hillside in the valley, looking across the valley, the, uh, the Uncompahgre River Valley, Corbett Peak is over there, and then Dexter Creek goes up behind me, and it's, uh, it's a great place for social distancing, it's a great place for reflecting and watching wildlife, and I've, uh, I've been fortunate enough to find, uh, I found my second um sheep carcass both with big full curls and 
So it's a, it's a pretty neat area for wildlife. I've only got two neighbors up there, mostly public land surrounding us. Really? So you found another sheep carcass up there? I did, yeah. Are they winter Terrific. kills or are they like cat or something or what? I'm not certain. I think this one is similar age to the first one. And uh, they're figuring that they were, they've were they been dead for uh, well over a year. So, you know, a year and a half to two years. My guess is they're probably cat kills up there. There's quite a healthy mountain lion population. And um, now with the snow melting, uh, there's, there's quite a highway. Uh, on my, they like to use my trail as well. Yeah, Angie found a sheep head, uh, I don't know, it was probably seven or eight years ago. It was over in the, the Dallas area, right? And we were, oh, yeah. we were, yeah, it was a seven or eight year old ram. Um, it was pretty interesting. And from where your from where your social distancing place is, I remember it was maybe four or five years ago. I was over two or three ridges doing some shed hunting in the spring, and my my dogs were really acting nervous and scatty. And I was like, you know, they just don't act that way. You know, I don't know what's around here. I don't think it would be a bear or anything. And I moved about 75 yards. I looked down and there was a cat eating on a bull elk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was it's like, pretty wow. common. Yeah. I had one this past fall, uh, right just 20 yards from where I parked my four-wheeler and then start walking on the single track to get up to my place. Um, there was a deer, cart, uh, very fresh kill right in the middle of my trail. And I decided to just leave it and pass through, thinking I might drag it off the trail if it were still there when I came back. And it was gone, and the, the cat had hauled it up in the rocks another probably 30 yards and had already done quite a number on it just in the two or three hours that I was up there cutting wood. Wow. Yeah, our cat density here is relatively high. Um, yeah. I think quite a bit higher than most people. It's awesome. I, uh, I love having them around. They're, they're good neighbors so far. And, uh, yeah, we all seem to sort of coexist up there just fine. Um, bringing it, bringing it back maybe to some of this, uh, backcountry preparedness or, or just backcountry rescue type things. Um, you know, like through through the years, what have you noticed that people can um, the easiest way to not have to call for help, right? So, like, how how yeah. can they be the most prepared, um, or at least maybe a couple, either it's items and or a class or something that they could do that would prepare them. Um, you know, if it's an Eastern guy coming West or, or just a Western guy hunting a new state or something, um, be, be prepared so he doesn't have to hit that SOS button. Yeah. Well, it seems appropriate. And I, I firmly believe this though. If, uh, if a person can have quality shelter and the ability to 
get warm or stay warm. And so Seek Outside is making some incredible, super lightweight, uh, really comfortable shelters. I've uh, enjoyed the heck out of my teepee. And uh, that's probably number one. I mean, you could, human could hang out and sit there in a bad situation for a long, long time with a high quality shelter. And then beyond that, I think it's just um, a big piece of it is managing your own expectations, being realistic about it. Uh, Altitude is the great equalizer. It doesn't really matter how fit you are. Um, I've seen really, really fit people just hammered by the altitude. And then I've seen some, I've got some buddies that are not exactly what you would call fit and they can do just fine at high altitude. They're not going to set any speed records, but it it doesn't seem to bother them. Hmm. So those would be the two big ones, you know, shelter and sort of managing your expectations. But then beyond that, you know, with the, I've been using this little uh, in-reach device that pairs to my phone, and it's just, I can't imagine going to the woods without that thing now, Um, just because, you know, the wife gets nervous if I'm going to be overdue or something like that, and it's so easy to communicate. Um, You know, we respond to a lot of what we call third-party reports, and so concerned family members who haven't heard from their significant other, their friend, their loved one, whatever, who is out hunting or hiking or whatever it is. And they expect, you know, people to start acting on that information. And so that means that we have to put people in the field and and start chasing that down. And so just the ability to, to send a quick text that says, everything's good, I'm just running behind, that could have saved us hundreds and hundreds of hours on the rescue team over the last couple of years. I, I agree 100%. And I have some personal experience with it. When, um, probably three weeks after I moved to Colorado initially, I did a big backcountry trip in the Weminuch. We were climbing some remote peaks in the Grenadiers, you know, Storm King, Silex, uh, some of those peaks right in there. Um, and I told Angie that I was going to be home sometime afternoon on a certain day. And I think that she thought that I meant shortly afternoon. And I meant basically, <laughs> do not expect me, you know, until, you know, sometime after this time frame, right? So I got in, I don't know, I got back maybe 10 or 11 o'clock that night. And this was before inReach, before spots and all that. And she was really like, they were about to call rescue on me. (laughs) You know what I mean? When it would have been so easy, it was so easy with the inReach to, you know, be like, hey, we're running late. Because I mean, it, it takes, even though Storm King is not, that far as the crow flies from where we reside, it takes a significant amount of time to get there. You know, it's, it's several hours into cell service away from cell service. So. Yeah, it's huge. I think, and it's, uh, in addition to saving time and resources from the rescue side, I think just being a, you know, the, 
easiest way to ensure that I have plenty of time for hunting and that it doesn't become an issue within our family when I'm out wandering around in the mountains or the woods is to keep, you know, Natasha informed and communicate with her and uh, all the things you would expect of any healthy relationship. And InReach has just made it that much easier. And, and she's put up with this a long time. I was a guide while we met and she, she understands that, you know, she's not going to call rescue until I'm probably two days overdue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, um, the, the inReach, and I, I don't mean for us to sound like salesmen for inReach right now, but it's, a, it's other, a pretty handy device though. It is. I mean, you could download weather reports cause I don't, I don't really trust weather reports more than three to five days out. So when you get on these longer backcountry trips, you can download weather reports. You can, the mapping is real handy. You can set waypoints and all that stuff um, pretty well. The only caution I would have is I did have a problem on one trip where I updated my phone and the app didn't work on my phone. And I got back somewhere. I was about 45 miles from cell service and realized that my inReach was no longer working. And I was planning on using that as my map too, instead of a paper map. So I was basically back there like, hmm, I don't have any mapping. I All I know is I'm about smack dab in the middle between Peonia and Glenwood, <laughs> you know, um, that's yeah. about all I know. So. You know, that's a, raises a good point. We have a, uh, the rescue team uses a similar device and it's our protocol that we will send a message from the incident command post or from the barn before we deploy with that device so that we confirm that it's working with the phone that's going to be, you know, traveling with it. And so that, uh, that definitely happens and uh, that's how we're sort of addressing that. Um, so I, <clears throat> sorry, I've, I've heard these stories, right, where people have used the inReach in the SOS button on the inReach um, because they've run out of coffee or <laughs> they've, you know, um, you know, ran out of toilet paper or something. Um, have you guys dealt with that? Had any kind of um, random, I guess, uh, uses of that technology? You know, we have been fortunate here in Uray County to not have too many of those. The bigger issue for us are accidental activations where somehow the SOS button gets pushed. Um, but I, I am fully aware with some colleagues over in busier metro areas and sort of side country areas where that's happening. And, uh, I'm not sure how I would handle that or deal with that. Um, <laughs> but we it is funny. Part of our protocol is it takes a fair bit of time to actually zero in accurately on the ping location. Uh, initially, we've experienced that they could be as many as 30 kilometers off uh, when we get the first coordinates. And so we're pretty patient when we respond to those and we now have an algorithm that allows us as responders to sort of vet the information and wait until we get a, a highly reliable 
location before we start. And then, of course, if it's traveling or moving, we're uh, we're also taking that into account as maybe an accidental. Mm. So, um, so that first ping when someone hits the SOS button, it can be off that far. It can be off. Yeah, it does. Not always. Sometimes it's sure. quite accurate. Um, but yeah, we've had several of them that were way off initially that just didn't make sense with mm. where. And so I think as an user, you have to understand that as well. Um, one of sure. our colleagues from out in the Northwest, Portland Mountain Rescue, a number of years ago, did a, a interesting study and and reported on it at the International Tech Rescue Symposium. They got permission to activate these things up on Mount Hood, and they activated them from snow caves and a variety of other locations, and they just sort of tracked the flow of information because they obviously knew where they were when they set it off. And, uh, yeah, for anybody that's interested in looking at that, the, the write-up is available online, and it's 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 pretty cool. Um, so, so um, I guess, did they find, you know, um, I, I guess my question is, don't hit the SOS button and then power it off and assume someone's coming, right? Like, you want to uh, keep that thing on, try to get it maybe in a better spot if you can. Um yeah, certainly, you know, avoiding canyons, tight canyons, things like that. You want to be out in the open. Leaving it on is important because it allows us to get a more accurate uh, location as well as continuous pings. And then if you're staying put and it ultimately dies, um, it doesn't really matter because you're staying in the same location. Mm-hmm. Um and so that's pretty it's it's much easier for us to find somebody who stays put than it is uh chasing down someone who's on the go. Hmm. So um are you able so let's say I hit the SOS button, right? I'm out um wherever I'm at, I hit the SOS button. Um are you able to communicate with me directly? Like how long does that take? Right? It depends on the service. It takes a little while because in the United States here, all of those calls get routed through an Air Force Rescue Coordination Center. And then from there, it goes to the local county. And then from there, it goes out to the appropriate people. And so there's quite a pathway that it travels. And they're continuously trying to update that information and get additional pings to, to improve the accuracy of it. And the folks at the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center are the ones that are able to determine the accuracy of this uh, of the ping, uh, any given ping, and and where we're going with it. Hmm. Interesting. So, like, do you know? Do you have any idea what that lag time is? Is it like hours, or is it? No, no, no. It's pretty quick, and uh, the better the signal, the faster that tends to be. That's been our experience. So. If you know, someone's out in the open, relatively unobstructed view of the sky, you know, not a lot of big giant peaks around sort of in the close proximity. That could be, you know, 30 minutes. And so in the grand scheme of things, it's not really that long because it's going to take a rescue team 
long, yeah. quite a while to spool up and, and do their thing anyway. But, uh, yeah, it, it's not immediate. And I think your point about hitting the button and then turning it off is that's really relevant. You, you want to leave that thing on and, and let it do its thing, send another signal. Um, and then depending on the service, uh, in certain cases, we can send texts out to people, but uh, that's relatively newer technology and not always the case mm-hmm. for us. Got it. And it's what, also kind of important to, to you got go it. ahead, Dennis. No, you got it. No, uh, it's, kind of, it's kind of important uh, that almost every rescue team that someone is going to be dealing with and unless they're in a national park are probably volunteers. Oh yeah. And Even in the national the, park. Oh really? Oh yeah. And, Lots of volunteers. And the level of training, the level of training could vary greatly between them. I feel fortunate that, you know, the rescue team I was a part of for a couple of years was very well trained partially because well, we're fortunate to have people like you who are, and Mark Miller, rest in peace, who were trainers for rescue trainers as part of our rescue team. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, the, this community is really fortunate for those people as well as uh, just the general membership, you know, that people who tend to live in Uray County are, fairly active outdoors people, you know, the people on the team are climbing guides, uh, do a lot of hunting, a lot of trail running, spend time out in this environment. So the team knows this terrain really well. And uh, that's probably the case for a lot of teams across the country. And, um, you know, I think the recreating public would be blown away at how many volunteer hours are committed every year to, to these teams, to training and to missions. And I mean, it's, it's in the thousands for every team out there, even if they have a relatively small call volume. I I would agree. And I mean, for instance, I, I remember that, you know, canyoneering seemed to kind of be picking up steam here. And one of our trainings was here, let's start repelling cold waterfalls and canyoneering <laughs> scenarios, you know, uh, uh, I think you were the one maybe even running the show on that one. So. Yeah. Yeah. People choose all kinds of interesting ways to recreate. And um, yeah, we had a, a really interesting mission this last summer. It was actually some friends of mine uh, we found out, but uh, a gal that was pregnant had about a 40 foot fall and uh, everybody, everybody came out of it just fine. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really dynamic environment, which we choose to, to recreate and play and live. And the rescue team is, it's pretty busy here. Awesome. Um, do you have any other uh, advice before we start to wrap up? I don't know. No other advice. Just uh, thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's awesome that uh, 
we're talking about and considering, you know, safety and and avoiding rescue in the backcountry and trying to promote users, regardless of your mode of travel or motivation for being there, to be a responsible user and prepare well and modify your objectives based on the current conditions and your current your current condition and health and situation and um, if that's the the case then you know everybody is able to enjoy the backcountry and it's it's not so impactful on anybody well that's awesome and it's been our pleasure having you on you have anything you want to add any other stuff you want to go over dennis or ask um, no, I'm good. Thanks. Uh, thanks Kevin for coming on and, uh, hopefully we get to meet, uh, face to face someday. Yeah, we should have, uh, you guys welcome anytime up at the Santa camp for some social distancing. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Sounds excellent. Thanks Kevin. Thanks a bunch. Great. Yeah. Have a good day guys. Thanks.